Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Raham Fagiri and Colm Dennis. They're the founders of AppDeco, where you can buy and sell used furniture. They were in the YC Winter 2014 batch, and you can find them at aptdeco.com. All right, here we go. All right, guys. Well, thanks for inviting me to your amazing office. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what do you guys make? So we are AppDeco. AppDeco is a marketplace for buying and selling furniture uh, based here in New York City. We take care of essentially like the whole process from pickup mm-hmm. and delivery to payments and everything in between. Yeah. So basically we kind of took Craigslist and just, you know, said we get a trusted community of users. If you can make the pickup and delivery easy between two people and the payments between two people, you'd have something useful. And so that's essentially been the premise uh, since we launched. And what what made you convinced that this could be a fully fledged product? Because I've seen all kinds of blog posts about like, you know, the fragmentation of Craigslist, right? Mm-hmm. And some have succeeded as products and others haven't. Uh, what gave you the impression that this could be a thing? Well, I mean, we started out of our own frustration. Yeah. Um, just having a really bad experience trying to sell on furniture on Craigslist. Um, but realizing it's a big opportunity was we did a lot of market research to sort of test if this is something that people would, would be interested in, sort of the premise of the solution. Um, so for example, we would go on Craigslist initially and test Hey, with delivery, like we'll actually just copy somebody's listing and just add delivery and see how people react to it. Okay. And we saw that like, oh, this is, there's definitely a big opportunity there because people seem to be a lot more responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, when you just add the delivery, like word to the listing. How could you know that if you hadn't created the original listing? Would you, so you would dupe it we twice? Would, yeah. You would do one with, in one without. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah. The, the other thing we, we, when we did our research, we saw it was the fifth most popular category on Craigslist. Okay. Furniture. Uh, furniture yeah. was the fifth most, fifth most popular category. And then when we, we created like a, an MVP and, um, and when we actually had launched the site the first day that we had had the Frankenstein of a site like in 2014, <laughs> you know, we, we had a transaction the day that we launched it, and this is with no earthly idea of like really what we were doing. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just think, all those signs kind of pointed to it. Uh, and then when we applied to YC and ultimately got into YC, I think that's when we were like, you know, shit, this is, this is like, <laughs> this is real, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Were you pursuing other potential ideas? Because the, <clears throat> yeah, like the market research thing is much more of the business school approach yes. and it's a less common approach within YC startups, right? So were, were there other ideas that you were considering? There wasn't any other ideas. And, um, you know, I just, Raham and I had wanted to work together for a long period of time. Yeah. And, you know, quite frankly, it wasn't really that scientific and we, we weren't, I don't think we're the traditional founders in the sense that, you know, we, we were in like serial entrepreneurs. We, you know, come from very traditional business background, but we were like, you know, we took a lot of inspiration from Airbnb and other companies. We're like, this is, this seems very obvious. Yeah. Um, and that we kind of just took it and ran with it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for us, like our experience, like we were so frustrated yeah. with what happened to us when we were trying to sell our furniture on Craigslist. Um, and then we started kind of really frankly obsessing over like this just is really, really bad. Um, that 
I, frankly, like, I don't think either one of us was ready at the time to start a business, but we stumbled upon this idea. Mm-hmm. And when you were ending business school, When right? I was ending business school yeah. and column, um, it was sort of like happened all at the same time. I was ending, I was finishing business school, coming back to the city to start a job at a startup, not start my own company. And um, so I was trying to sell my furniture and I just had a really, really bad experience. Um, and column at the same time was also trying to sell a piece of sofa, a sofa, and he was also had a bad experience. And so we were just like talking about it and just like, why is this so bad? Airbnb had just taken off. Uber had just taken off. And, you know, everybody's like now doing this sort of quote unquote sharing economy. Mm-hmm. So why couldn't you do that with furniture? And we just kept on talking about it all the time to the extent yeah. we're like, Hey, like, let's just do this. Yeah. You know, now is the time. We don't need more experience. So, and mm-hmm. we, that's, that's really kind of how we, happen i would say yeah how did you psychologically prepare yourself to like go off that ledge and not have the steady you know goldman paycheck because <laughs> you also from business school do you yeah. have loans and things oh you yeah need to cover? i still yeah. do yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i'm still paying those loans yeah. <laughs> yes i mean I, I, I don't think anything prepared us for what yeah. we got ourselves no, into nothing will prepare you <laughs> yes. I, you know i think that we were just kind of at the point where you know i, I think when we had kind of gotten to the interview point of of YC and like quite frankly I was still kind of moonlighting so I was still doing my I was like doing this in the the evening and then doing uh, working at L'Oreal and that you know that's the only job I'd ever had I'd never worked professionally anywhere else so I you know so it was and I was very quite frankly very happy at L'Oreal it Hmm. wasn't like I was you know I'd always had like upper mobility and I I loved working there I loved what I was doing I was very happy um, in that corporate environment and you know, had a lot of experience and upward trajectory, but I, you know, I think that, you know, we just saw this as an opportunity. And then we said, you know, at the end of the day, like if we failed, you know, it's not like we couldn't go back to, you know, corporate America or go somewhere else. And we always were kind of confident in our, in our skills, but, um, but this is super yeah. interesting to me because I a hundred percent agree with you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for most people at these super competitive jobs. They're talented enough to get the job. They could get it again. Yeah. But how do you flip that switch to get over the fear? It, you know, I think when we got into Y Combinator, that's where we were just like, okay. Actually, when we got to the interview point, yeah. then we were just like, okay, if we're, if we're getting to YC, we got to do it. I mean, like, there's but you no, had already you know, quit before. Like, he had already given his note. Column, Column had already given his notice mm-hmm. before we even got to, we had received the interview request, but we hadn't been to YC yet for the interview. So you didn't so know we, you were in. So we didn't know we were in, no. uh, yeah. but I had already, I decided not to take the job that I came to New York for okay. and ended up just doing this full time. Yeah. Um, and column was moonlighting and essentially help financing it. <laughs> so yeah. uh, while, you know, while he was working at L'Oreal and then doing this at night and okay. in the weekends. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think, I mean, I think like we just saw a problem that we became very intimate with and also the solution uh, for the problem, we experienced it during the same time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we had this really bad experience, um, trying to sell our furniture on Craigslist, I was, I moved back to New York and I had my truck and yeah. Column borrowed my truck for that one day, listed it on, listed back his listing on Craigslist saying one day only free delivery in New York City. And that same day, someone gave him the full amount and showed up immediately, did mm-hmm. not cancel, did not flake, was not sketchy. And so we're like, wow, like this is 
this is how you do it. You have to offer delivery. You have to take care of everything. You have to make it simple. And so we saw the solution and that like really helped us sort of it fast forwarded our, I guess our like process of deciding whether we should do this or not, because yeah. we, we had the problem and the solution at the same time. And we're like, okay, we got to do it. Right. So yeah. you have that kind of like positive feedback from exactly. the market. Yeah. 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 And I, I guess, and I, I guess we just felt it was a good kind of common sense solution as well. Yeah. I think it's found as like, we're very, we're probably more practical than most. Yeah. And we're probably, you know, we're probably kind of one foot in front of the other type of founders yeah. versus, um, you know, like, uh, you know, I don't know, like kind of in the clouds type. We're very, like we're, 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 yeah, yeah, projects. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're very, I think we're very practical in the sense. And, and I think that we saw this as a very seeing it with our own eyes and seeing the opportunity. We thought of it as a very practical kind of so, solution to, to something that, you know, everybody has furniture. It's a kind of a big problem. So I think a lot of those kind of things were, you know, kind of fit, I think within our, if I have to think it back, back about it now, fit within our warehouse, like this is very, something very tangible and something that, that could be really useful. When you could kind of model it out. And yeah. Just like, oh, this works. Yeah. This works. Absolutely. And how did, and then how did you communicate that to your <coughs> friends and family from these like prestigious <laughs> jobs and schools and stuff? We're still figuring that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you know what's funny? Like for the first time I actually sat down with, um, with my father and, you know, I, I, um, uh, we've been kind of in these conversations with investors recently. So I showed him like our investor deck and I'm yeah. just trying to just take him <laughs> through the investor deck. And I'm like, you know, and it, it, it's such a strange thing to talk about, you know, raising a few million dollars or doing this and that. It, it just, you know, it, a lot of times, quite frankly, I think it's just like, you know, you're talking, <laughs> I mean, you're, it's, it's very hard to make it very tangible, you know, for, you know, we're saying we're practical. They're uber practical, yeah. you know, so, yeah. um, but I think that they understood it. I think when we, when we first did this back in 2014, I think there's a lot of, um, like I wouldn't say just skepticism. I think it was just like worried, mm-hmm. just worried, you know, like don't give up like that good job and don't, you know, don't, you know, a bird in the hand, a bird in the hand is definitely, I think the philosophy that my parents have. I think probably most people probably that generation. And I would guess, and Raham can I speak on it, you know, they're, you yeah. know, you speak on that as that, you know, they're, you know, you, if you're have an immigrant story, it's like, you know, you're going to do find a good job at a good company and you'd stay there. And so this is, I think it was just so foreign. Yeah. They were skeptical and worried, but at the same time, kind of supportive. Yeah. I'm a parent. So I'm, I'm from Sudan. I came to the U S for college. And so my parents still live in Sudan. And so, for them, the golden ticket is to have a job at Goldman, <laughs> you know, yeah. not, not start a company and, you know, just work crazy hours and yeah. the, the whole thing has just kind of been crazy yeah. for them. So they're like finally, I think, wrapping their heads around it. But yeah. I mean, pretty much almost every phone call I have with my parents is like, so when is this going to be over? Yeah. <laughs> like, Whoa. yeah, it's just, it's, but also they don't live here. So they don't see the impact we're making, you know, like they, it's yeah. a completely different world, yeah. right. For them. So, so they just don't really understand it, but they're supportive, which is the important part, yeah. you know? So but there's they, not a kind of an entrepreneurship narrative in Sudan. Oh, it's huge. My dad yeah. has his own business. Right. Um, my entire this family, my entire that family. Yeah. All my family members have their own businesses because the, the way the economy is structured there is there's no large corporations. I know, I guess there's a couple, but most people are just small business owners. Um, 
you know, my dad has his own engineering firm. My aunts and uncles, most of them have, you know, either like their own medical practice or engineering firms or architecture firms or what huh. have you. So that's the the norm. But I guess because probably they're business owners that they know is how hard it is to run a business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. if you have a job that pays well and you don't have to worry about, you know, covering everybody else's salary, right. why are you doing this to yourself? Right. So that's probably where it comes from. I actually think, you know, in my my parents are probably, you know, I, even working at L'Oreal was like a kind of a leap for them. You know, they're more like like a good stable government type of job. Oh. Quite oh. Frankly. Like, where, where are you from? I'm from California. I'm from oh, the, right. Yeah, from the, from the Bay Area. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, they're like uber focused on stability, you know. And so where, you know, that, that's... You know, I was never interested in those, you know, particular type of things. And I was always, always interested in business and wanted to work in a company that was exciting and innovative. Yeah. And even for them, I think that kind of seemed like kind of like fluff. And so this was like even another level of like really <laughs> Such a off weird the generational thing because you yeah. would assume that even like being from California, at least yeah. they'd like, ah, oh, you go work at HP or something. Yeah. But like that's not. Yeah. You know. Didn't no. your dad work in the government or? He yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. He did. He did. And so. And my mom worked for like the railroad, okay. Southern Pacific. So I think, you know, super stable. Yeah. Very, ex- exactly. <laughs> super stable. Yeah. And so, um, even a company like L'Oreal or Goldman Sachs that, that Goldman Sachs still has, has a process where they like yeah. go, I think, 10, their bottom 10% every year or something really? like that. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so, right. and, and L'Oreal is an extremely lean, you know, company or corporation. So it's, it's not a company where you can like hide around and, yeah, skate you by. can't coast. You can't, you <laughs> yeah, can't yeah. coast, you know, and so, which that's, that's never been the type of thing that I was interested in anyway. Okay. You know. And did you go to business school as well? I didn't. You I didn't. did not. I okay. went to undergrad at Clark Atlanta, okay. which is historically black college in Atlanta, Georgia, and Rick, I recruited for L'Oreal right out of undergrad, and uh, I was there for like 13 years. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. And, and now, how do you get in, were you getting into startups in business school? Like... How did this happen amongst your friends? Because I know that that's been a pretty big shift from like, you know, 15 years ago, if you went to HBS, it was like mm-hmm. private equity or like consulting. Right. But now it seems like more people are going to like, you know, like the Googles and the Facebook type mm-hmm. companies. Right. So when you were in school, was that coming up or? Yes. What? Yeah. <clears throat> yes, it was definitely coming up sort of. Um, there was definitely a shift where more I, I went to Wharton and there were more my class or more people talking about tech yeah, um, versus going into banking and finance. So like the market had crashed a, a few years before and, you know, a lot of people are just sort of exhausted of the, from the financial industry and they were looking for something else. It was actually interesting. When I started business school, um, I mean, I knew I was always going to do something. Um, actually, my one of my essays was about building a social enterprise, but I didn't know what kind of social enterprise. I always thought it would be connected to Sudan or connected mm. to Africa in a way. Um, but I, I always knew that I was going to start something at some point, but I didn't think straight out of business school, I'm yeah. ready. I needed more experience and that's why I wanted to join a startup. Um, so when I was at business school, I saw this shift where a lot of people were asking me questions, people who came from finance about tech because I'm an engineer and everybody wanted to like, okay, well, you know, tell me more about tech and like, you know, how do you be a product manager? How do you do this? I'm like, wait a minute. All these people are asking me about (laughs) tech and I'm trying to get out of, you know, tech. Something is wrong there. And so, you know, I really started digging deeper and, but I did definitely do a lot of startup uh, sort of business plan competitions when I was in business school. Okay. Um, 
talked to a lot of people who started their own businesses and yeah. just sort of realize, well, wow, all these people are, I mean, I feel like I'm smarter than, as smart as them. They can do it. I should be able to do it. And that really helped yeah. me. And I think get but further. You, and, yeah. and I think yeah. I was, you know, I think we were very, I was very fortunate to, for Rahama to kind of work on this, work on Epdeco kind of at that time because yeah. she was being immersed to mm-hmm. kind of the startup world where I think I was quite frankly like very removed from it. When I think about kind of where we are now, when I think about pre YC versus post YC, um, you know, and just, this the just the tech environment, particularly in the, in the Bay Area. For sure, you know we're like, man, I was light years away <laughs> from that particular world. And if it wasn't for um, <clears throat> Y Combinator kind of giving us like a significant immersion into kind of the startup world, I don't think that you know we I don't think we wouldn't have we would have had the progress that we've had. Like definitely hmm. not because there's there's so many things that. You know, I think when we started this, we said, listen, we have a lot of business experience. Yeah. We, we work at great companies. We've worked, we've worked at great companies. We can just apply that knowledge and, and, and start this company. And this is the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, we, you know, just what it takes to get from zero to 10, you know, is, is a totally different zero to a hundred is a totally different yeah. skill set than, than, than what we had acquired during our professional years. What were the the outstanding learnings from a classical business education? Because I think there's like this common trope that like business school is a waste of time and even like business education in a lot of the startup culture, mm-hmm. right? And so people fall back on, you know, whether it's like PG's essays or mm-hmm. kind of like lean startup things. Um, but I'd be willing to bet that there were super valuable courses that you guys took. And so if you were talking to other startup founders, what what would you pressure them to learn I mean, one of the things that I always think and I always joke up the team about is financial modeling and just being able, you know, I've become pretty crazy with, yeah. it's not even financial model, but just modeling. How do you model? How do you build projections? How do you think about business scenarios? And, you know, sort of as you think about your next big project, yeah. like how do you map that out? Um, that was purely from business school. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's like probably the biggest thing that I still use every day here. Yeah. I think for me, just, um, analytical structure. Um, so when you're, how, how to structure looking at numbers in a way that makes sense, you know, I mean, that, that's all I did at L'Oreal. I did my whole, my whole entire professional career. And so, um, you know, at first, yeah, it was not mm-hmm. as applicable. Like, so, you know, when you're first, you first have a getting your startup off the ground, you just gotta like just do shit and throw and see what sticks and then, do more of it. And then listen, you can analyze it like later down the line. Yeah. But like at first it's just like, you just got to do a whole bunch of stuff, not in a scalable, manageable way. Well, you, you were know? doing the deliveries on your own too. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. We were doing deliveries. We we're going to people's homes, buying furniture. Like we're just doing all kind of all crazy kind stuff, of crazy. Yeah. you know, <laughs> and you know, at the, at the instruction of, of the YC partners. And then you figure out how to take those kind of crazy zany ideas and to make them into kind of scalable practice practical models yeah. of things that are repeatable in a scalable way. So, but after that, once you, after you do that, yeah. you know, you ha- have to know how to view your analytics, set up, you know, a strong foundation to really be able to look and say, did this work? Did that not work? How do I continue to repeat this? The other things too, is I, I think is um that people don't talk about enough is just, just the establishing a business culture how to team management, Mm -hmm. people management. It's huge. Yeah. And that's a huge pitfall for, for startups is that they, 
don't know how to manage people. Mm-hmm. They have a lot, you know, they, uh, they implode because, you know, because they, they don't know how to deal with conflict. Shitty culture. They don't, yeah. yeah, they don't know how to talk to one another. They don't know how to, you know, manage dynamics if there's, if there's conflict amongst one another. Yeah. And so I think, I think that's probably one of the biggest things that people don't talk about enough that's is true. just, yeah. you know, conflict management and, 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 and people management is something that I think that we've been able to deal with hiring, firing. Yeah. Um, all those things are things that we've had experience with that hmm. that are very tangible and, and very relatable to startup. And like role. even creating structure, I would say. Yeah. So, you know, early on, sure, you're a tiny team, maybe you're like three or four people, and people sort of dismiss the idea of, oh, we don't really need structure. We can just talk to each other yeah. all the time. But having regular checkpoints, like weekly meetings and, you know, those type of things actually make a big difference or big difference or even, you know, Team meetings where everyone comes together and talk about sort of whatever's happening next week or what have you. People dismiss that. And these are the things that come from business school or come from sort of our traditional work experience that these are things that we've done every day when yeah. we were there. Right. And so, uh, we've been able to instill that from an early, early, early on in our, in sort of our business. And I think it really helped, helped sort of calm things down mm-hmm. to some extent because it's crazy being in a startup anyway. So if you can mm-hmm. create a bit of sense of stability, stability, it goes a long way for the rest of the team. Yeah. How, how would you structure that? Say a founder approached you and like, this is how you should structure your check-ins or whatever it might be. What's mm-hmm. a, what's a framework you use? We meet, um, <clears throat> we meet with, uh, our direct reports once a week. Um, and, uh, more if we need, if need be, but once sure. a week to just, to talk through just what are the kind of the strategic projects that they're working on. Um, we just have our project list sheet that's public for everyone to see. So we have a project, a project list sheets in Google sheets, simple, stupid. And we have all of our strategic projects that people are working on. Um, we touch on those projects and we have kind of tentative due dates. Sometimes you'll, you'll finish ahead. Sometimes it'll take longer. It's more than you expected. Um, and we have those. We also have daily stand-up meetings, mm-hmm. um, where we just have a quick kind of touch, touch base in regards to what we're working on to keep the team kind of engaged, uh, engaged yeah. and collaborative. Um, and, and then we, we have a one, one, one time a week team KPI meeting where, okay. we, where we review the overarching numbers for the company. Okay. Um, so that could be sale, unit sales, dollar sales, refunds, returns. Um, positive and negative Yelp reviews, you know, all those things that we have about once a week. And when it comes to conflict, and, well, actually just dealing with conflict, not yeah. conflict avoidance. Like how do you do, is that through the one-on-ones? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's through the one-on-ones. And, um, we've also done, um, we do performance reviews, um, even okay. at our state. So we've yeah. been doing them for the last three, we've been around for, almost five years, but we've been doing them for probably three. This is our mm-hmm. third or fourth time. Um, it's very simple. Like we didn't use a software or anything. We just created some questions, um, on, t- you know, type yeah. form, which and, are what, um, you know, how, how do you rate this person's ability to deal with difficult situations or, you know, their problem solving skills or team management skills or responsiveness, responsiveness things like that. Like I think there were like 10 or 15 questions. Is it quantitative? Or? Yeah. So it's okay. a scale one to five. Okay. Um, and it's 360. So, so um, everybody reviews everyone. Everyone reviews everyone. 
50 people review 50 no no oh, okay. so this is our um the hq team so 10 10 people 10 review t- okay. yeah exactly okay. mm-hmm. um and it doesn't take long yeah and then we review it and then even column and i ours are public so the whole team gets to see because we have to hold ourselves accountable as well so we find you know transparency is very important so we yeah. share with them now the are the reviews anonymous yes okay Mm-hmm. Very important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's tricky. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's tricky. And so we compile the feedback. Um, you know, of course, like when you're writing written feedback, there's sometimes you can tell who's who. But be, as the managers, we compile the feedback and try to anonymize it as much as possible. But the form itself is definitely anon- yeah. anonymous as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think the one thing that I, you know, that just to kind of harp on that again, I can't be, I think it's important to stress is just, you know, I don't, we're not afraid to, mm-hmm. um, in a very, you know, and obviously, you know, in a way that's developmental is not afraid to tell people when they're not meeting a particular expectation or falling below, but to be able to do it in a way that's very constructive. Mm. And I know that's just, I know that's from, from working mm-hmm. in corporate America where you have to be politically correct and you have to know how to kind of structure feedback in a way that, you know, in a way that is that works for a company of that scale. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of founders struggle with that. I see a lot of them struggle with that and they'll just let something fester on and on um, because they don't know, the, you know, because they're not, they haven't had kind of a professional training in uh, conflict management. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, have you guys had to let people go at this point? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think founders get wrong in that department? <sighs> and I think we've fallen victim to this. They wait too long. Yeah. Um, they, uh, they are not transparent in terms of like maybe they'll fire them at without really giving them the opportunity to course correct. Yeah. So they'll 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 as a manager they'll bottle in like I'm so tired with this person doing X Y Z and they'll just hold it in for six months and then they'll just be like you know fuck Explodes. it you're fired yeah. and they'll explode <laughs> and this this person will be like hey I didn't even know I was doing something wrong yeah you know so I think those are kind of things that you know I think those are some things that people definitely kind of the missteps what do you what do you think yeah i mean i think those are like definitely the two and we always if it's performance related uh because sometimes you're firing because quote unquote you're downsizing or like sure. maybe the role no longer is needed yeah. and that's direction. very different yeah. yeah um and even like if you're changing direction engaging that person earlier on in the conversation yeah, yeah. Uh, so they understand like hey and we've actually had to do that hey like this is where the company's headed it looks like we don't need this role anymore um why don't we put plan together to see if there's something else you can do? If there isn't, then, you know, start looking for something else. And we're giving them that opportunity and being that transparent actually was, yeah. was really, really, it's very yeah. hard conversation to have. Sure. But it's an important conversation because these are, you know, like people that we really care about and we yeah. want them to, to also be successful. But in terms of firing, firing in terms of performance, we always talk about also by the time you're, Fired, you should know that you're kind of getting fired you know it's because coming. it's you know it's coming because yeah. we've had plenty of conversations about performance, about expectations, yeah. about you not meeting expectations. If it's a shock, that means as a manager you're doing something wrong. Yeah. yeah. If it's, if they're surprised, that it, that means you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when it came to modeling out your product in the early days, um, in the beginning, did you ever have negative margins? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Doing it we, yeah. I mean, we also did not really, 
we've had to learn <laughs> what our margin, like how do uh, you actually compute your margins and what goes in all the different, you know, the, the nuance of the transaction. It took us time to learn that. Right, so, sure. um, I mean, even like our fees were just so low. We were charging, I think it was like 10 to 15%. Um, transaction fee versus now it's like 19 to 29%. Yeah. Um, and that's because we were not really thinking about margin at all at the time, which is, I think, like a lot yeah. of the issues. Or, yeah, or, or we just, you know, yeah. or, it's not like or, or we, you know, we weren't, we thought we knew the cost, but then you don't, you, once you get into it, you realize there are, there's another cost here or cost there. And so, you yeah. know, the model is just kind of the foundation and structure, but. For sure, it's going to change as yeah. once you kind of once you really get into it. That's why I think YC is, is so good. Just about like man, you just got to just do it, just do it because you're there's so many things that I mean I don't care how many amazing models you have or how much experience you have. There's when you do it for the first time, there's going to be some things that you're going to uncover that you weren't expecting, totally. and, and you got to be able to you know modify and change for that. I think also like early on, you can't like you have you can't be optimizing just yet for margins. Yeah. But you know, doesn't mean that you offer your product for free because you still don't know what goes into it, into it. Like what are the different um, variables? But once you've established that, Hey, like this is actually a product that works and people want it and they mm-hmm. come back, then you need to like dig into the data and figure out exactly what it takes to make a transaction, how much it costs to get a customer, all those things, and mm-hmm. then adjust your fees and prices accordingly. Yeah. 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 Cause I was wondering, you had mentioned in another podcast about partnering up with another delivery provider early on, right? So I assume this is, you guys are doing it in the very beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Cause you're like, we're going to test if this is a product that anyone gives a shit about. Uh, and then you're like, okay, getting this like going in the direction of product market fit. But how do you even figure out that pricing? Like, are did you just guess that people weren't going to be price sensitive and add an extra ten percent on? Like, um, so when we work with the moving company, we just negotiated the lowest price we could negotiate. Yeah, and then um, it definitely did not work out <laughs> because <laughs> you know they ended ended up canceling a lot of our jobs because they get more expensive jobs, and our customers were getting upset. So then we brought it in house, and we were just. Uh, we pri- we kept it at the same price initially. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely at that point was negative margins. Um, then we actually ran A-B testing in terms of pricing to understand prices sensitivity. And that helped us determine like what is the – read the threshold for what people are willing to pay versus – it's kind of like a formula. You can sell more products mm-hmm. and – lower delivery fees and maybe your fees will cover the the difference yeah or you sell less products and higher delivery fees right and so like we fear we finally understand what is the right mix yeah to make it work and do you think that sweet spot is the same across cities no i don't think it would be the same um but we'll have to wait and yeah see yeah tbd yeah tbd but new york is i think i think in new york because people don't have cars yeah um it's much harder right and so people are probably willing to pay i would venture to guess a bit more for mm-hmm. delivery than in other cities and maybe in other cities people are willing to pick up things on their own more frequently potentially. Yeah, if you a, i mean I, if, when i lived here very few i mean like like i could count on one hand my friends who had cars let alone a truck and you know what like, you do? Anyone, any friend who has a car, you're always like, oh, this is the friend. Like, when you're going to the Hamptons, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. take me with you. Or if you're going to Ikea, please <laughs> let me know, yeah. right? So, yeah, those friends are always very, <laughs> become very important. Yeah. And as you guys have uh, aged now, do you, um, 
have you gone up market or like who are your average customers at this point? So the average customer, um, the, the seller and the buyer side are, are different. So we got kind of two different customer bases. So the seller is a little bit older. So let's say they're like 30 to 55 okay. and you know, maybe they're, they're, you know, stereotypically they're like married. Maybe they're like making room for a baby. Um, they have higher disposable income. Um, and you know, for people listening who are kind of in the New York area, let's just say they're like the upper West side couple. If you know, if you can imagine yeah. that okay. and the buyer is Williamsburg 25 to mid thirties. Um, like first uh, or second job, first or second job. Mm, okay. And so, you know, they are aspirational. So they're, you know, maybe they were buying Ikea, but App Deco is an outlet for them to now kind of get West Elm or Restoration Hardware or Crate and Barrel and get these really, um, really design within reach. These really kind of nice brands from these higher end people mm -hmm. and a higher end customer base. Um, and so we kind of have these two kind of parties that were kind of matching together, I think, okay. quite nicely. And, yeah. And then in terms of your question about upmarket, we are, we do, we're starting to see a shift where people are, um, like seller, there are more sellers who are becoming buyers, for example, hmm. um, which is for us is a great indicator that we're also changing the way people, um, shop used, which yeah. is important for us. So, you know, if you have a higher disposable income, you probably, you can go, you can afford to go just buy the restoration hardware piece again, but you're willing to come back to App Deco and shop for, for the same restoration hardware piece at 50% off because you're, you know, so like for us, that's like a very big indicator. Mm -hmm. Um, we're, we're definitely sort of raising, widening the age gap, I think, for like the buyer side and the seller side is much easier because if, if any buyer who sell, buys through us ends up selling through us anyway when, when yeah. the time is right. Um, mm -hmm. but seeing that shift from, for the seller side, for them to become buyers is really big for us. Interesting. And, and what percentage of the sales are driven by like big brands? Like mm -hmm. how, how much of the stuff is like, you know, design within reach, restoration yeah. hardware type stuff as a percentage on your site? Yeah. So around 65, 70% are the top seven brands here. Oh. In so huge. Um, Ikea, West Elm, CB2, Crane Barrel, Room and Board. In New York, ABC Carpet and Home, but yeah. it's only a brand new York. In New York, York City, yeah. ABC Carpet and Home. So, Hardware, you know, for us, like that was a, that, that was, you know, that, that, this whole kind of understanding of brands was a big aha moment for yeah. us. Yeah. You know, from an acquisition perspective, from a merchandise, you know, site merchandising perspective. Um, that, you know, that these are the things that the levers that drive acquisition and drive how we should be presenting and speaking to the site because, you know, these are things that kind of speak to, it's the easiest way to derive quality is, is through, is through brand. Right. Well, and I would also imagine that's like a ton of organic search. Like yeah. people are looking for restoration hardware couch. Exactly. Yeah. And like that's exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. And how else are you guys acquiring customers at this point? So, um, we, Acquire customers through Facebook, Instagram, Google. Um, our, the, our original channel, we kind of did this backwards. Our first 
channel that we were able to figure out was actually out of home subway advertising here in New York City. So, which, which is, is totally backwards. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, definitely not the traditional, um, I think advertising for startups, but I think, you know, my experience at L'Oreal with kind of out of, out of home or TV advertising, all those things, I think it kind of lend ourselves to kind of go there. And then we have to figure out the digital part after. Um, so it actually kind of, I think speaks to kind of, I think, quite frankly, our shortcomings from yeah. a acquisition perspective, the things that we have to kind of learn as we went along. Um, but now we've had the time to kind of really figure these things out. Uh, but yeah, so now we have a really diverse group, but the majority of our customers now they're through, um, through referral, hmm. probably 45, 50% of our customers are through word of mouth, friends and family type stuff. And so, um, which is, you know, something we're very excited about. And That's amazing. With. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you track a subway ad? Did you have a unique URL? Like, cause I can't imagine well, people remember that. Like coupons, the coupon coupons, codes. Yeah. We also ask people how they've heard about us, yeah. like at checkout or during oh, listing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. It, it wasn't. The, it wasn't the coupon because no one used no, it. No, nobody used. Nobody used it. It it's was the, just the how you heard. I mean, when we launched it in 2014, we did, it. I mean, our our um, I mean, our our, our traffic tripled. Yeah. After we you get did to it. see it because it was like the only channel. This is the only like, channel. Yeah. Like this. Very. And yeah. then and then we'd ask you know when people were either listing a piece of furniture or buying a piece of furniture. Like Rahan mentioned, how do you hear about us? And I mean, it was very extremely obvious. Um, and it also, um, this is like a shout out for advertising, <laughs> advertising, but it also had a nice halo effect for our other channels as well. So that's like a validator. Yeah. It was like, oh, this yeah. company, like people have always assumed that we're much larger than we actually are <laughs> because, because of subway advertising, no doubt. Did you do that with the YC money? Like how much did you have in the bank when you spent all that on subway advertising? It was a risk. Not a lot. It was a risk. Yeah. Yeah. Is definitely less than 500k. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a big chunk. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It was a huge like 50K, risk. 50k for just one, you know, one, one, one month advertising. One month of how many cars? Uh, one. There's there six thousand subway cars in New York City, and we were in one in six. One in six with one ad in those subway ads. So, so now, oh, you can't even like A B and the ad. You can't print a bunch of random ones. No. no. Oh. One, one, and um. And, uh, you know, at the time I was just very confident and I was like, I was very <laughs> I was not. I was like, <laughs> I didn't know this ad. That's crazy. We that... were, I, we, I hired, um, we hired, uh, a guy that I, a, a, a creative exec at L'Oreal that I used to work with and had a great rapport with and we hired him and we still work with him on like them. consulting really? basis. Yeah. yeah. And we he's, just kind of put, put our heads yeah. together and no yeah. A-B testing did it. We come up with and, the concept, uh, and then he he makes it look amazing. Yeah. Whoa. We were literally um, like kind of bursting at the seams from the response because we didn't have we didn't have the uh, you know back end kind of we didn't have the delivery operation to support yeah. kind of yeah. kind of the growth that we had at that time. So, but that's what I also wanted to ask you about because that that delivery operation seems daunting. For a lot of people, so like, did you hire someone with experience in that, or you just like wing it? We definitely winged it. Yeah. yeah. So that was quite a lesson learned. Um, and I think we probably could have benefited from hiring someone with experience earlier on, I would say. Yeah. Um, but we, yeah, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, yeah. we didn't know what we were doing. We were just, we were, you know, it was like 2014, 15, we we're bursting at the seams. We just needed to fulfill orders and we were just renting vans. We were not thinking about our margins. We were not thinking about how much it was costing to do any of that. Um, we ended up re- leasing long-term leases 
I think, what, eight or nine vans at the time. It was definitely premature because you, our business is cyclical uh, yeah. or seasonal, excuse me. So, so we didn't really think about what happens during the low season. And then yeah. all these vans were just parked in the, tr- in the, in the parking lot. Uh, but we've learned a ton since then. <laughs> and we now have our head of operations who actually comes from furniture manufacturing supply chain. She's done a lot of this type of operations. So she's helped us a lot to get yeah. things you in know, order. You know, at the, and at the <laughs> yeah. same time, I think that, I mean, it's from a, from like a text, from a tech stack or from an intellectual property standpoint, um, you know, what we've built on the operation side. Mm-hmm. So the way that our model works is so we don't, we don't warehouse anything. So we only, we pick it up and deliver it in the same day. Same so day. we're doing hundreds of pickups and deliveries across three states. Um, and so, you know, the scheduling of these two people across, you know, across, you know, all these variables is very complex. And I think that, um, that required, some kind of, you know, a little bit of outside of the box thinking, mm-hmm. um, in order to be able to do that. So, you know, what we've built is really unique. And I imagine that building it from scratch and not having any preconceived notions in regards to how delivery and logistics works in some ways was, was helpful mm-hmm. because it allowed us to kind of imagine something that I think is really different than what anybody's doing. Yeah. yeah. And, that's true. and yeah. that's, and that's why, um, you know, our, our model is, you know, it's one that's as compared to other kind of furniture consignment models is a lot more lightweight and a lot, um, has the ability to kind of scale because we don't have these type of costs because we're able to imagine something really interesting from a delivery standpoint. Yeah. So you, there's no like kind of open source routing software that you're using. You just kind of rolled we your own. We looked for it. We definitely looked, yeah. um, but yeah. no, we ended up building everything ourselves. So, uh, okay. And so are you a CS engineer? Electrical. Electrical engineer. So how are you vetting these engineers in the early days? I mean, in the early days, our, our team was still very small. Yeah. So, but I mean, I did a lot of software development at Goldman. So okay. when I was at Goldman in the beginning, that's what I was doing. Then I moved to product <clears throat> management and I ran a team of engineers. So, okay. so I, I knew how to do that part. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was possible. Yeah. Okay. And then what about the, the choice to actually not warehouse? Was that obvious from the beginning? It was, that was always the plan. For we the never considered warehousing. Never considered it. It was, it, warehousing was not the obvious solution for us because yeah. we, we always thought that you're going to be capped by the space of it. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's kind yeah. of like, like if you use the Airbnb, uh, example, like building hotels versus making everybody's apartment a hotel. Yeah. And so, you know, we always, not that we knew that, like we didn't think about it like that time, right. but our model essentially is you can make every person's home a warehouse warehouse, pretty much. And so, but from the beginning, we, you know, we were essentially trying to solve the Craigslist issue, which is you go to somebody's house and you pick it up from them and you pay them in cash. And then, so why don't you just do that by paying them online and then somebody else picks it up for you. Yeah. And so the warehousing part was never a point of consideration. It was not a point. Yeah. But now for other reasons, we realize, we you know, proved- it's, 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 it's cost prohibitive. You, yeah. you, you, you can't, you can't, in our opinion, build a, build a business model, a sustainable business model by having, by warehousing everything. Cause you're going to always going to be capped by the space. 
the cost to cover it, someone is going to have to pay for it. And ultimately, to either be the buyer or the seller on the platform who is already relatively price sensitive, it's a million reasons why, why, yeah. why in our opinion, it, 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 it doesn't work. And there, and there are a lot, there's been a lot of startups that have come and gone that have tried to do it that way and, um, were unsuccessful. Were there other ideas that you thought might work and then just absolutely failed that you've tried out? <laughs> For App Deco itself? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, like features. Oh, yes. <laughs> Plenty. Um, what did we try? Man, there's so many. Let me I just know, think about I'm it. I mean, you know, right the, 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 the road of any startup is lined with a gazillion failures. Um. So we actually did, so, you know, simple things that intuitively would actually should work. Offering photograph, photographing for customers. Yeah. Nobody wants to do that. So funny. So, yeah, if you took the Airbnb advice yes. and you're like, this was a huge yes. growth thing for Airbnb. Yep. Yes. Yep. Like, nope. This is obviously going to work for us. Nope. Doesn't work. It did not work. Offering cleaning services and all that type of stuff. Nope. Did not work. People don't care. People don't care. But they know? don't want to pay for it. I mean, yes. yeah, but it, they don't want to pay for it. It's also su- severely discounted. So if you go to the same company to do the cleaning, they'll pay you, they'll charge you double. We yeah. were, we, we negotiated very good, con- like very yeah. good deals and people were not buying them. So we couldn't even keep the deals because we, you know, promised a certain number of yeah, cleaning yeah. jobs. Yeah. So, you know, stuff like that. There's a ton crazy. of this stuff, stuff that you think should work did not, people were not budgeting. Yeah. Okay. You know, another interesting, interesting thing too is that, you know, there, there are things that you think they'd work and they don't work and then you do them again and then they do work. That's true. So yeah. for example, um, you know, we were mentioning the acquisition channels and now we're doing Facebook and Instagram advertising. Today it is one of our biggest channel advertising channels and we try, we hired a, um, agency mm-hmm. to manage, manage our campaigns before and, they were not successful when we had hired this agency to do it. Well, we tried, we had, yeah, we, they were not successful when we had the yep. agency do it. And so then, um, a year later, so we weren't doing any advertising on it at all. A year later, we dust it off and we're like, let's just like look through this and see if there's something to be learned from what happened, uh, when we tried to do these, you use these acquisition channels. And then we saw one campaign that, oh, wow, that campaign did really well. Hmm. All the it's 15 campaigns there. See one that did really well. I'm like, let's just turn back on that campaign. Let's just see what happens. And then back, we turn it back on. It's continued to do well. And then we're like, well, why did this? And then, then that just kind of spurred us really, um, understanding our digital advertising channels. That was really the birth of it. Yeah. Um, and tour tour now it's, it's, it's our one of our, it's our most profitable best channel. And you know, it's something that it took us quite frankly, three, four years to kind of really figure out how to do it, you know? And so you're sometimes I'm like kicking myself like, Oh, I wish I know what I know now. And, you know, but it takes the, I think a difficult thing with startups is, you know, it just, it takes some time to take some time. It takes time to figure things out. You know, some things you have to figure out quicker or faster. Some things, you know, you really gotta, you know, have some patience. And one of our models now models now is, you know, particularly from a marketing perspective is I just rather do a few things really, really exhaustively well, then just try to do a whole bunch of things to where I can't really understand the nuance and the detail of it to understand if it works or not. And yeah. I think that that's kind of a big shift that's really paid off. But it's also so hard with algorithms anyway mm-hmm. to figure out what you're doing well. Yeah. But do, do you know what was it about that particular campaign 
Was it the audience? Was it the content? It was, was a content. It was um, it was an ad that was testimonial, and um, you know, when I look back, actually, on those campaigns, I'm I'm a little embarrassed by them to be honest with you. But um, yeah. this one was kind of testimonial, so it just spoke. It just like had quotes from customers, if I'm remembering correctly, and that did really well. Um, and uh, the other ones were really off base when I think about them now in terms of their performance yeah. and the things we were throwing. But you have to throw things out there to have them stick. But then we start doing things that focus on brands and doing things like that. We start really looking at our kind of internal numbers, yeah, internal search terms. And once you start becoming – really understanding your digital channels, understanding your search volume, your landing pages, your click-through rates. And if you understand those things, let's say whether it's for your website, you can – just kind of flip it on its head through your advertising and acquisition channels. But it, it took us some time to really kind of understand the, that type of detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what kind of analytics are you running on your site now? Um, in terms of like platforms. tracking, yeah, yeah, figuring it all out. Yeah. Like the I mean, flow. Yeah. So we, we, we track everything from like clicks to even usability. We record videos, um, like in the background, we, track all our data, customer data, all of that. And uh, we have visualization tools that we use to visualize it and be able to manipulate it. Okay. Um, and they've been, it's been incredible. Like since we've invested, we invested in like one platform specifically yeah. and that has completely like transformed the way we do things um, because before we were running SQL queries, right? And so like that takes time. So not everybody, actually at some point, everybody in our team knew how to do SQL Um but, but it takes time because yeah. you pull it and then you have to manipulate it. You have to analyze it. And then being able to just use a tool is a bit expensive. It made a big, big difference. Hmm. Yeah. Is there a reason why you're not mentioning it? No, I don't know. I don't want to like advertise it, I guess. Why not? <laughs> no free I mean, shout outs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why not? It's tough. Let's just say it. We use this tool. It's called Looker. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, that was, that's super helpful. Mm-hmm. Damn, it was great. It was a big, it was a big change. And I mean, I think that that kind of opened, I think kind of opened our, opened us up to more analytics in other ways. And, yeah. And, and, and it like made us become a for analytical yeah. company. Kind what? of brought us home to our, our experience, our professional experience before starting AppDeco, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. At least for me. At least for me. That I mean, I think case. we were just like able to dig into a lot of detail that it was hard to catch when if you're just manipulating Excel documents before. So, you know, like yeah. getting to like the nuance of brands by category and the time it takes to sell and who are these people, who are the people are dropping off and why and what did they have in their card? And, yeah. and you visualize it all together. So like you have these crazy dashboards um, that can be super detailed. Then you can actually look at this data and able to make some yeah. sort of look at trends and make some conclusions and actually able to use it for marketing purposes or yeah. for updating the product um, yeah. or operations. Even the operations, we've become a lot smarter even from our unit economics perspective because we're able to like look at all the nuance that goes into making a transaction, yeah. right? So, oh, okay, this is the revenue, but here's all the costs associated <laughs> with it. And like you can see that all together. It yeah. makes a big difference. Yeah. Especially for product people. Um, now, did, did you guys do the New York City back and forth during YC? Yes. You did? Was Every it worth week. it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yes, it definitely was worth it. Um, so we didn't know that this is what we were supposed to do. So we had like rented out our apartments here, and oh, subletted man. our apartments, and we, sh- we went to... 
Mountain View, and I think I can't remember. It was like PG or it was PG. It was PG. He's like, "What are you first day?" He's like, "What are you guys doing here? Yeah. You need to be in New York." <laughs> and so, and so we're like, "Okay." And so we started flying back and forth every week for the three months. Yeah, yeah. it was pretty. We would fly on Tuesday morning. And then out Wednesday. Wednesday, yeah. Out Wednesday. Dude. Every week. Every week, yeah. And after demo day, we like, <laughs> we crashed. like crashed for like two, three days. Like we were I just would, like, yeah. after demo day, we were, <laughs> we were fin- but it was, finished. it was definitely finished. very valuable because, you know, they, yeah. during YC, they kept on talking about, talk to your customers, talk yeah. to your customers. And we're like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to talk to your customers? Literally. You do a customer service. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, no, it's not customer service. You need to somehow figure out a way to get in front of your customers. Yeah. And I mean, it still, it was, it was exhausting when it's the best it advice we could have ever yeah. What else was helpful? Yeah. Just kind of like wrapping up. I'm curious. We're about to start another batch. If you could give some advice to the people about to go into the batch, what would you tell them? I would say, um, <clears throat> all the suggestions and all the ideas, no matter how crazy or off base or non-scalable or hard that they may seem, you just do it at a hundred percent and, and, um, do it in an exhaustive way. That's what I, I would say. And I think the one thing, I think that that was, I think the key for us really getting a lot out of mm. YC is that every week we, our partners were, um, Paul Bukai, Kevin Hale. Those are our main partners at the time. And, you know, they would have, you know, so you would sit in the team in the group, the group office hours with all the other companies. You will see that you'll learn that you guys are all in the same boat, all have the same problems and to some level or extent. And, um, you know, and then they would give you this feedback or ideas. And then by that following week, you know, we were very diligent about having some legitimate, um, responses to yeah. everything that they had said we should do. And, um, we just really took that to heart. So we just like, we like just ate it all up. Like, you know, we really like dove in a hundred percent and we were not a, above anything. And I think that that, was really to our benefit. What would you say? Yeah, I, mean, I think like we took our learnings from corporate in that way. And so, you know, we had our one-on-ones with the partners and we created structure. So like made sure we set up the meetings every week because it's up to you. You don't have to set up meetings right. with them every yep. week. So we made sure we had like reoccurring meetings for the, the duration of the program. And we had goals or, you know, like here's our agenda. Here's what we have questions with. And here's what we're looking to get done. Yeah. And they would have suggestions. And then the next week we'd be like, well, here's the list of things we got done. And here's, but you know, we held ourselves accountable and made those mm-hmm. meetings become to some extent, like the reason we're to hold us accountable for yeah. them. Managed up. Man, exactly. Managed up to some extent. Um, yeah. and you know, and like the, the advice we would give sometimes is very specific. Like you um. should try, you know, I think there was one like you, you need to have a blog for SEO, but sometimes it's just like you need to talk to your customers and it's like, well, okay, <laughs> what does that mean? And, and trying to like figure that and, and distill it is, is also a big part of, part of that as well. Awesome. Well, if people want to try out AppDeco, what should they do? Go to AppDeco.com, A-P-T-D-E-C-O.com. Awesome. Thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you so Thanks. much. All right. Thanks for listening. 
So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.